According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, as we get started. We are in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll return to where we left off on Sunday morning in Philippians chapter 3. We'll also take uh, some time for questions and answers as we get started. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And you know when a paragraph starts with not, (laughs) you know, uh, the Apostle Paul is concerned about things that all speakers are concerned about, that you just get through saying something and then you realize folks can take that the wrong way. And so he just got through saying everything that he was saying in verses 7 through 11, and he stops and says, not that I am already obtained it or have already become perfect. So don't take me the wrong way. This is not what I'm saying. This is not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. And he finds a different way to come back at it and to intensify it, to bring it about in a deeper way, and it's just, it's beautiful the way this comes across. And so uh, we're going to pick up where we left off on Sunday and deal with it. Uh, on that basis. Before we do start though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father in His faithfulness to set aside our distractions and to feed us from His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before You this morning, this evening, thankful for Your truth, thankful for Your faithfulness, thankful Father for the uh, permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. It's unique to our church age. It's unique to us. Uh, Old Testament saints couldn't dream of such a blessing, yet here we have it. And Father, based upon that indwelling, Father, we have the, uh, the leading, we have the filling, we have the teaching. I thank you tonight that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. And so we call upon that faithfulness to, uh, to bless our time of study. Help us to understand it. Help us to live it out. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are pressing on the upward way, and that's what this is about. And I'm going to run through the chapter outline one more time here in a moment. But before we do that, though, we want to take some time for questions and answers. We have a microphone ready to go. Christopher's got the microphone ready to go. So uh, we want to take some time for questioning. Let's start with Bill. And I don't think I have an email question this week, but I can double check. I think we're caught up to date on anything that came in by email. Yes, we did those last week. All right. You were talking this morning uh, about Job and using the the reference of a hedge being placed around Job and everything that he owned, and then the, the hedge got smaller to where it was just around uh, Job himself. And so I, so I went back home and I, and, I, and I read through it, and I noticed that when God allowed Satan just to kind of destroy everything and kill everything that Job has, mm-hmm. one of the things was, but don't stretch out your hand and harm Job. Mm-hmm. And his wife wasn't killed either. Right. So I was kind of wondering. I usually get some good mileage out of that when, right. I, when I comment on that. <laughs> well, I was kind of looking at, sorry, I was kind of looking at Genesis 2.24. Mm-hmm. In reference to, because he didn't say don't harm his wife. He just said don't harm him. Mm-hmm. But yet, 
Job's wife was spared. So I was kind of wondering if that had anything to do with Genesis 2.24 where husband and wife are considered one flesh. I've never thought of it that way before. I'll have to, I'll have to chew on that. Uh, I've always understood that, that, that uh, he could have killed Job's wife because the only restriction was he couldn't touch Job. So he killed all the boys, he killed all the girls, he killed the servants, the animals, all that. Um, but he left her alive. And what we see very quickly in that chapter, she then is hurt and, ang- and angry and blaming Job and, and influencing Job to curse God and die. And, and so I think Satan, Satan's not dumb. Whatever else you want to say about Satan, he knows what he's doing. He's very smart about what he does. And I think that Job made the decision, a tactical decision, that leaving her there would be rougher on Job than killing her. All right, and yeah, I know I say that, and I, I, uh, yeah, but that's that's what you got to come to, you know, related to that. So uh, it's like uh, you know Delilah, Samson's wife, and 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 Eve with with Adam, and all these other instances where the adversary knows when he can use the woman to get to the man, and so uh, yeah, just flat out killing her kind of removes a tool from his from his arsenal. And I don't think he felt any any need to do that. Okay, so basically there uh-huh. can't really connect. I don't see a connection with Genesis 2.24. Okay, all right, thank you. Uh-huh. All right, Al Dowdy, you get our next question tonight. And then Carol? All right. Throughout the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, they were, uh, after uh, they, you know, they have a statement of a king mm-hmm. uh, in Israel, if it was a king of Israel, it says, and the acts of this person are they not written in the the, the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Mm-hmm. And if it's in uh, if it's in uh, Judah, it says are the his acts and everything he does uh, not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Mm-hmm. Uh, inferring two books now in the Jewish Bible, they only have one chronicles, one kings. So are these really kind of synonymous, or is there really a difference? I take them as different, and I take them as not the biblical books we think of in terms of Kings and Chronicles. Oh. And there are, there are plenty of other extra-biblical written sources that are like the Book of the Wars of the Lord, the, the Book of Yashar. The, there's other books that are mentioned, the Chronicles of Iddo the Seer. That's one that I'm looking forward to, <laughs> right? The, the Chronicles of Iddo the Seer, things like that. So... There are a lot of uh, written sources that are mentioned contemporaneous with the 15th century or 14th, 15th century writing of, of the Pentateuch. And that's, that's significant. And, uh, and when you go through that, the ancient world was far more literate than the modern world wants to give it credit for. And uh, because the, the modern geniuses today want to convince themselves that we're the smartest guys that have ever been here. And thankfully, you know, the Renaissance got us out of the Middle Ages and now we're free to you know, from enlightenment on to the age of Aquarius, we're just going to get better and better. The thing, though, is all of that, none of that's true, right? And in fact, it's kind of the opposite. Sin intensifies and things decline. Thermodynamics and decay and things just get worse. And so far from being the, the smartest people ever walked this planet, I think we're really rather mentally crippled, dependent upon our technology and our devices and so forth. We don't have the memory or the uh, just the the mental acumen that that we had in previous generations and, and centuries. So, um, the the ancient world was far more literate. Uh, Egypt, ancient Egypt, was very literate, and Moses was fully educated in all the 
the literature and the science of the Egyptians. And, uh, and, that's, and we know that from the book of Acts. So uh, anyway, I don't, those, those extra biblical books you're referencing, I don't think that they are equal to what we call today the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles. Okay, just to be clear, they're not referring to what we know as First and Second Chronicles. Correct. All right, thank you. Uh-huh. All right, and then we cross the aisle on a bipartisan basis. So Doug was talking in prayer about the doctrine of head, of the hedge. Yes. What is it? Oh, this morning. Yeah, this morning we were in Proverbs fifteen nineteen, and we were talking about hedges and highways. And the fact that hedges, there are certain metaphors and there are certain concepts in Scripture that when you see them, they, they almost always refer to the same thing. Oil almost always has reference to the Holy Spirit. Leaven almost always has reference to sin. And so there's things like that that, that are used that way, that for one thing and one thing only, and you consistently see that throughout Scripture. However, there are other things that aren't used with a singularity of, of usage. Sometimes there's two usages, or there's three or, or multiple usages and so forth. And, and hedge is one of those. Sometimes a hedge is the best thing in the world. A hedge is defensive, a hedge is protective, a hedge, the hedge around Job kept Satan from getting to him. Other times, though, hedges are horrible. Hedges are the divine discipline that God puts around, uh, around a believer to uh, cause them no end of difficulty in their, in their reversionism, in their carnality. And so when a believer leaves the will of God and he, and he goes off into sin and he's all in the, in the paths of darkness, God will oftentimes throw a hedge in front of his way, and that's a way of waking him up and a way of of sparking that pain. So there's negative uses of hedges as well as positive uses of hedges. Yeah, so we, we, were, we were there this morning. If you want to get the Proverbs class off the website, that was, uh, that was this morning. And it was a very amusing Bible class to me because it allowed me to use my hedgeway illustration from the, uh, the famous hedgeway illustration from a Scrabble board from two years ago that... Uh, Hedgeway is not a real word, but I used it in a, in a national tournament and got away with it because it was unchallenged. It was 230 points on a triple-triple basis. So I'll tell you that story after church. <laughs> or if you want to hear it again, um, you can get the MP3 from this morning and you'll hear, you'll hear the story in all its glorious detail. And if you want a high-resolution JPEG image, I can email that to you of, of the board. Right. And yes, that is now my nickname. They call me Hedgeway, and they call me Hedgeway Bob because, because of the word. It's a beautiful word. It's just not a real word. It's just not valid in competitive Scrabble play. All right. Did I answer all the questions? Is there anything else here tonight? Otherwise, we can go to Philippians then and pick up. All right. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate running the microphone. And so um, I don't know that I'm going to show this uh, outline very many more times. You've seen it a few times already, but uh, just so that you know that really when you get into chapter 3, you're now into the meat of the epistle because chapters 1 and 2 are really background information. And with the background information out of the way, Paul and Timothy are now full into their exhortation to, uh, to rejoice and to joyfully keep on pressing onward and upward. And that's what chapter 3 centers on. Um, and we'll get past uh, this. Um, because in verses 1 through 6, we, we dealt with the rejoice and the beware tandem. Remember that? Uh, verse 1 is rejoice always, and verse 2 is beware. 
beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the mutilation or the false circumcision. And then, uh, and then he goes into his credentials where he talks about all the great things he had going for him as far as uh, the uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel or the tribe of Benjamin, all these other credentials, being a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisee and uh, uh, advancing beyond his contemporaries. And yet even with everything in the world going for him, he tossed it away. He just re- recategorized it on his, on his profit and loss statement. He took everything that was a, a profit and he wrote it off as a loss. And he says the, the better thing is knowing Christ. And that's uh, what we deal with there. Uh, whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And that, uh, that takes humility. That is, a, uh, that is an act of humility. And so where we are presently then in verses 12 through 16 is in understanding that this humble attitude equips all of us, not just Paul. He's setting the example here, but we should, be, we should be imitating that. We should be living this out ourselves. This humble attitude equips all of us to keep pressing on the upward way. And one of my favorite hymns, we sang it on Sunday, that uh, higher ground, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. And so that's what we have here. Verse 12 through 16, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And then finally, when we do wrap up this, par- this uh, section, uh, then we'll wrap up the chapter in verses 17 through 21. And uh, it forms another warning too, by the way, and I believe it's a separate warning. Some people do a lot of work to try to, to, try to equate the early warning against the dogs and the evil workers and the false circumcision and try to take that early warning in the chapter and equate it with a later warning in the chapter, uh, those that are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. Uh, I think it's better to view them as two separate groups, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll demonstrate that when we get to that second warning. All right, so for tonight, pressing on the upward way, and um, we've covered point one, I think, already in, in all of its detail, and, and we're ready, I think, to deal with the rest of point two at this point. Um, the, the passage begins with Paul's negative affirmation. He, he just wants to make things clear. Not that I've already obtained it. Not that I've already been made perfect. And he, uh, he, he wants to be loud and clear. He says, I'm not saying I'm there yet. Everything that he wants to attain to, uh, that, I, that I may uh, be found in Christ, that I may gain Christ. And that's uh, something we, we need to be mindful of. We've come to Christ when we got saved. And if you've been saved for a while, then that was some time ago. You say, yeah, I, I've got Christ. I came to Christ. But have you gained Christ? Have you gained Christ in the way this passage talks about as a victory, as winning, as gaining, as profiting? Yeah, you have Him. You're saved. You're going to go to heaven when you die. But have you gained Him in the way that this passage deals with? And uh, the way it defines it here is Uh, to be found in Him, to know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. I don't think that describes very many believers. Just on a ratio, I think it's a minority. I think it's a a remnant of a remnant in terms of those that fully know Christ in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. And all of that is described as being rapture-ready. In verse 11, in order that I may attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. That I may arrive to the out-resurrection from the dead. And so um, 
with the negative affirmations here, Paul is not as of yet achieved the objectives. He is not as of yet prepared for the rapture. Okay? And it's, I think it's vital that we adopt this attitude ourselves that we say, not yet. Okay? Not yet, but I'm headed there. Not yet, but I'm on the way. It's, it's within reach. I can almost reach it. What you don't want to fall into is the trap that says, I'm not there and I'm never going to get there. I'm not there and I'm never going to reach maturity. I'm never going to be, uh, I'm never going to be you know, rapture ready. I'm never going to be confident of a full reward. That's, that's the defeatist attitude that this passage tells us is not our attitude in Christ. So, not that and not that, but I press on. And that's the, uh, the aspect there. And so we talk about Lombano. I'm not going to go back through this because we taught this already. Uh, the nature of, of taking is lambano, and then the nature of being made perfect is teleao, and we all want to be made perfect, but we know that we're not the ones doing that. Remember a passive verb? You don't do the passive verb. Somebody else is doing it, and they're doing it to you. <laughs> okay, That's the idea of a passive verb. An active verb you've got to do, but a passive verb, somebody else, oftentimes God himself, is acting and you are receiving the consequences. You are being acted upon. And so uh, being made perfect, the Bible doesn't command us to make ourselves perfect or to perfect ourselves. God does the perfection. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And that's, uh, that's His job description, not ours. And so um, the way that these are used in parallel with not that I've already lombano did or already become perfect, those things are then equating themselves. And so we discussed that in the nature of this, of, this, uh, of this passage. All right. What does it mean to be perfected? It equals gaining Christ, found in Him, rapture ready. And when that rapture ready is realized, it means we are face to face with Jesus Christ. We are a saint in heaven, having been made perfect. And so as I look out across the room, I see that no one's in heaven yet. Uh, that we're all still here on planet earth so we're all still being perfected and while that perfection process continues then we're still that work in progress until such time as he says okay done and then uh, and then he will grab hold of us and bring us to heaven and we're going to grab hold of that reward that full reward that he's designed us for what a day that's going to be all right and then uh we started talking about persecution and pursuit. The idea of dioko, I press on, I press on. And uh, so when he says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on. And that's a, that's a verb of energy. That's a verb of, of uh, you know, it makes me tired just thinking about it. You gotta, you gotta chase after something, right? And you gotta grab what it is you're chasing. And that's the idea there. And so um, it takes work. It takes effort, which is, I suspect, why most believers uh, don't care to even pursue this. That this is, uh, they would much rather just be, um, you know, listening to something that makes them feel good. They would much rather just kind of be entertained uh, to passively just kind of hear something or see something, and 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 then to feel better about themselves for doing that. You know, saying I'm a good person. I went to church, and and then. You know, that's kind of the, 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 the whole philosophy behind what's, what's referred to as moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's what Christianity has become by and large. Well, we know that's not what the God designed it. 
God designed us to run with endurance the race that's set before us. So there's, when we get saved, there's a race that's set before us, and we need to get running. And that's, uh, that's what it's about. So uh, dioko is the verb, I think, that renders that. Uh, to, pers- to persecute, to pursue, to press on. Um, there's no coasting with dioko. You know, with, with this verb, you're not just kind of relaxing and taking it easy and coasting a bit. You're continually pressing on. The accelerator pedal continues to be um, engaged. And so that's what we looked at there. And then the purpose. I press on in order to, that I may. You have a purpose clause expressed here in verse 12. Why am I pressing on? I press on so that I may. And this all expresses intention, expresses purpose. So that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So there's two purposes there. Jesus had a purpose when he grabbed you, and you've got a purpose for reaching forward to grab that same thing. The same thing for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And I hope this helps. I hope the idea of purpose gives a help uh, related to that. Uh, we did discuss the intensification of the language from lambano to cata lambano, and that might be what Kevin was referring to in prayer meeting. Um, we have the lambano at the start of verse 12, and then we never see it again. And the lambano is put in parallel with the teleao to be made perfect. And it seems to me that the reason why we never see lambano again and why we never see teleao again is because those two verbs are then conflated in the verb we do see three more times now, the kata lambano. All right? And so my conclusion is that uh, what Paul has then done is he has taken, he's found a way to kind of abbreviate his earlier statement, that he has found a way to, to, to repeat it again in shorthand, to talk about laying hold of it and being made perfect. So he combines that into a, just a, a laying hold of it terminology but he has the intensive form of that with kata lambano uh, every time uh, one, uh, after that initial lambano. So does that make sense? All right. And so uh, kata lambano, used three times in this passage, apparently as a conflation of lambano plus teleia. And I think Paul was just doing this as a shorthand way of, of uh, combining these issues. So, if I may even lay hold of. This is an aorist active subjunctive of kata lambano. And, uh, and then it's followed by that for which also I was laid hold of. And that's an aorist passive of kata lambano. And so he's using the same word in two different ways. He uses the active voice, he uses the passive voice. And he uses it in such a way that it really uh, just, I think, it jumps out at you and, and, and makes itself obvious Christ has grabbed him, so now he wants to grab the prize. And that's, uh, that's uh, essentially what he's saying. That I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And then this, uh, this makes us imitators of him, being grabby. <laughs> but it makes us also um, united in purpose. Because the reason why Christ, Christ didn't just grab us for no reason, he had a reason there was a, a, a destiny, a goal, if you will, a purpose by which also Christ laid hold of us. And um, to me, the meat of this centers on that, uh, so much so that um, I kind of want to teach Sunday morning all over again. I mean, I think there is a, there's a huge impact in that. 
that when he grabs us, what is he doing? Why is he grabbing us? What is our destiny in Christ? And um, I think it's huge. Okay? And it's more than the baby believer even understands or even dreams about or even, you know, the whole idea when you get saved, oftentimes the focus is what? Not going to hell when you die, right? The idea that my sins are forgiven. The idea that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm forgiven and I'm reconciled to the Father and, you know, whatever else that you understand, probably very little uh, on the, the, the first day of your, of your eternal life in Christ. I mean, you're, somebody gives you the gospel and you believe in Christ and you get saved and you don't know a whole lot other than, hey, I'm, I'm happy to be saved, right? I, uh, and, but the idea that I'm saved unto good works that have been prepared beforehand that I should walk in them, chances are, you know, 99% of new believers don't know anything about that. Or that we have to run with endurance the race that's set before us. What new believer was told that before they got saved? Or even could understand that before they got saved? Without, the, without a living human spirit, you can't understand the things of the Word of God. And so what else? Hey, I'm a believer now, so I've been drafted into the angelic conflict. Yeah, like what, what new believer knows that? See, you don't know these things when you get started, but boy, you've got to get taught them pretty quickly. And uh, if you lead somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, don't, don't just abandon them as an infant by the side of the road. You get them under teaching. You get them on a growth track. You walk with them on that growth track. And uh, that becomes a, a vital thing as well. So when God the Father gives a born-again believer to Jesus Christ, He lays hold of that believer and He never lets go. And that's a, a powerful truth as well. In John 6 and in John 10, these are the verses we spent the bulk of our time in on, uh, on Sunday addressing these things. So it is a reaching, it is a reaching forward. And even as we are reaching forward, Jesus was reaching forward. The Father was reaching forward. The Father was handing us to the Son. The Son was reaching forward to take us. And we're held secure in those hands. To me, um, these, these things are, are uh, just beautiful truths. John 6. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but we can at least uh, refresh our thinking. My suspicion is that Monday and Tuesday you were doing other things and not just dwelling on... on uh, Philippians. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose not even one thing, but raise it up on the last day. And so this is it. We get saved, the Father gives us to the Son, and he grabs hold. He grabs hold. He's got purposes. He's got reasons for so doing. And He never lets go. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So both the Father and the Son are holding you secure. How are you going to lose your salvation? This beautiful, beautiful truth with respect to this. So he lays hold of us to guarantee our security. He also lays hold of us for a specific race or course or purpose. Depending on which text you're reading, they're going to have these different terms. It's either called a race, run with endurance, the race is set before you, or it's called a course, 
or it's called a purpose. We're saved unto good works that are prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? I mean, think about it. It's almost like the ultimate cosmic honeydew list, right? It's almost like, you know what that is? You've heard of that? All right. And so, you know, when, when somebody gives you a list and says, this is what I intend for you to get done. And oftentimes it's a spouse or it's, you know, a parent or somebody, a boss. But you get a list, a to-do list. And we get saved with a to-do list, according to Ephesians 2.10. Saved on the good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so that's the race that's set before us. That's the course of our life. That's the purpose of God in our generation. Acts 13.36. All right, when David accomplished the purpose of God in his generation, he then uh, was laid to rest with his fathers. He died, he was buried, his grave is with us to this day, we're told. Hebrews 12.1 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so there is a destiny, there's a reason why God saved us, and He didn't save us to fritter away a life in carnality. You know, frittering away our earthly life in carnality, uh, we could have done that as unbelievers. We did do that as unbelievers. So He didn't save us to keep doing that. He saved us for other things. And uh, so the purpose for which He laid hold of us, that's what we want to reach forward and grab. We want to grab our life destiny. We want to finish that course. We want to know when we're done that we've done what the Father has sent for us to do. That uh, we're going to hear well done, good and faithful servant. And, uh, and aspects there. And so this is what Paul pressed on to lay hold of. And in Philippians he can't say that he's done it yet. So he keeps reaching. He keeps reaching. It's within reach, but he keeps reaching. When we get to 2 Timothy, though, he says he's done. And he knows that he's finished his course. He knows that he's run with endurance. He knows. And so, um, it's not on the screen, but 2 Timothy 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's, he's putting this last thing on paper to send to Timothy uh, before he's executed. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. There is nothing left for him to accomplish on planet earth. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is one of the easiest crowns you can ever win as a church age believer. <laughs> you know? You got the soul winner crown, you got there's other crowns, and you can win them. Um, but this, I mean, how easy is this one? Loving his appearing. Be, just dedicate yourself to becoming the biggest rapture fan in the world, okay? Or the second biggest rapture fan in the world, because I'm the biggest rapture fan in the world. And just be, just be living for that and looking for that and dwelling on that and every day and every evening and every night recognizing, you know, uh, somebody on the phone says, yeah, I'll see you next Tuesday. They say, well, it could be sooner than that. Trumpet might sound today and, and we're out of here. I'll see you in the air. We will, uh, when that trumpet sounds, we're going to be snatched up. And just every single day to be loving his appearing and not, uh, not the skeptic that mocks and says, where is the promise of his coming? The, the mockers that come in the last days with their mocking and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So it seems to me uh, this is a pretty easy crown to get. So, 
Paul was reaching forward to lay hold of that for which also he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. All right. Then we start to deal with typical Paul. He says one thing, but he means two. Philippians 3.13. Regarding rapture-ready perfection, Paul says there's one thing that he regards. So he says, not that I've already attained or already been made perfect. Uh, He says, this one thing. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Okay, that's Philippians 3.13. I, I can't pick fun of Paul. I mean, I can, but the, we all do this, right? Constantly do this. I hear people on the news doing this all the time. And, you know, people will just, they'll, they have these idioms, they have these expressions, and they say, well, you know what? I don't know, but I'll tell you this one thing. And then they list three things. They list multiple things, okay? So um, one thing I know, one thing I do, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of, and again, there's no it there, but having laid hold of yet, but this one thing I know, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So uh, there's one thing he regards, and that thing is forgetting and reaching. Forgetting the, what's behind him and reaching to what's in front of him and pressing on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, and that verse is so um, didactic. That verse is, is actually when you read it out loud and it, it's written so as to convey what it's saying because it just keeps going and going and going. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you notice that? I mean, it just it's pulling you in, it's pulling you in, it's pu- and what it's doing is pushing you forward through the verse. And as it pushes you forward through the verse, it's doing what the verse is saying it's doing, it's saying what Paul is doing by reaching forward, by pressing forward. And I don't know, I, I, you know what you guys think, but I think that's just genius. I think that's, that is one of the most precious verses Paul ever put uh, quill to parchment dealing with that. All right, so we've got to learn how to forget and we've got to learn how to reach. And uh, we'll start tonight with forgetting. And this is kind of cool too because um, we've had forgetfulness now in both the Philippian series and the Hebrew series. Remember in Hebrews 6 last Sunday we talked about God is not unjust so as to forget your work and your labor and the service that you've done and keep doing. Um, So we had a a forgetting verse in uh, in Hebrews chapter 6. Tonight we've got another forgetting verse. We're dealing with this, forgetting what lies behind. And uh, forgetting, epilanthanamai, uh, not very common, but Doug will be happy to know that the Strong's number for Epilanthonomy is 1950. So, if you want to attach a Strong's number to a Greek verb you want to learn someday, uh, just use your birthday and figure out what year that was and try to remember. And then if you can't remember, it's probably because it's 1950 and it's hard to remember when it's 1950. All right, pray for doggies. We love them. All right. Epi lanthanomai. 
Lanthano is a verb of forgetting anyway, and then you intensify it with the epi, and now it really is like gnosis and epinosis. Uh, lanthanomai is just kind of your ordinary run-of-the-mill forgetting. But epilanthanomai is an intensive forgetting when it comes to that. And normally it's a bad thing. Here, though, it's uniquely positive. Here, though, he takes what's normally a bad thing and says, yeah, it's, there's, there's, it's, it's good to forget these things. And uh, as far as that goes. So what is it we're called to forget? Or what are the bad usages that we see uh, in Hebrews and in James and in Second uh, Peter? Well, I'm glad you asked. Normally it's a bad thing. I mean, when is forgetting ever good, right? You know, you forgot your keys, you forgot your wife's birthday, you forgot... I mean, all these things you forget... Is it ever a good thing? Well, it is in Philippians chapter 3. Hebrews 12, 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. That's a promise. And if you forget that, then you're going to be all out of sorts when he starts disciplining you, when he starts scourging you. And if you forget what it's about, then you'll think that it's, uh, you know, it's a bad thing. And God says, no, my discipline is for your good. It's because I love you. It's because I'm your father, you're my son, and I discipline you. So don't forget that discipline is a good thing. Likewise in Hebrews 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And that verb there, do not neglect, that's, uh, that's our verb for don't forget. Okay, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. You ever had moments when you thought maybe it was an angel testing you? Okay. Well, there it is. Verse sixteen: Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Don't forget to express divine uh, viewpoint goodness and the fellowship of sharing. These are sacrifices. These are priestly functions. This is not just, you know, being a good person, being a morally good person and sharing your toys because mom taught you how to share your toys. This is about doing true divine good production because it's the will of God, because it's the righteous thing to do, because you're shaped by the Word of God. And this is what believers do when they're shaped by the Word of God. Doing good and fellowship, uh, koinonia, sharing with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And if you forget to do that, you're neglecting it. So that's uh, described there as a bad thing. James chapter 1 verses 24 and 25, more forgetting, not in a good way. Anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, that's a problem. All you do is just listen to doctrine and you never use it. You're getting Bible information but you're not living it out. What's that like? Well, it's like somebody that looks at his natural face in a mirror and then looked away at himself and he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. That's how James describes the hearers that are not doers. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. This man will be blessed in what he does. 
Anyway, the idea, and I think this holds true not just for doctrine, I think this is a pattern for a lot of things, a lot of skill sets in life. And a lot of things, I remember in the army they would give you a block of instruction and tell you how to do something, and then they would sit down and walk you through it and do it with you and demonstrate it, and then they would watch it while you did it. So it was just reinforced again and again and again, and uh, that way you were not forgetful about what you heard. So that's described there. The other, the other uses are in Second Peter. One nine and chapter three verses five and eight, and uh, there's a long list of qualities here in uh, verses five through eight, but it says, "He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins." And the point in this chapter being, if you're not growing in these character traits of godliness and moral excellence and self-control, basically fruit of the spirit kind of things. If you're not growing in the Word of God, then quicker than anything, you're actually going to forget that you were even saved by grace in the first place. You forget. You become blind or short-sighted, having forgotten His purification from His former sins. And I tell you, if you're, if you're that worldly by not walking in the Word of God, that you might as well be an unbeliever. I mean, you get to a point where you actually forgot that you got saved. And why you got saved? That's a pretty sad situation. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. And uh, my favorite chapter that talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And um, verse 3 says, Know this first of all, then in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And they think we Christians are goofy, that we believe in our Bible, that we think that there's a second advent, we think there's a rapture, we think there's a, you know, a future destiny and a coming kingdom. And they're all like, yeah, 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 when's it going to get here? And, you know, it's been 2,000 years already since your Christ was here, and he's not coming back. And so it's just mockers with their mocking. But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, which is kind of a polite way of saying they, they done forgot. Okay? It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And so here they are mocking the idea of a global judgment and totally forgetful of the fact that that kind of thing's already happened. Okay? There's Noah's flood, there's the uh, Tohu Wabohu angelic destruction, also a water destruction. There have been two water destructions of this planet. The next one coming, it won't be a water destruction, it's going to be fire. The heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire. So don't let that escape your notice. It escapes their notice, through which the world of that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. So there's another destruction notice that's been filed. This one, though, is not a water destruction. This one's a fire destruction. Reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. If you know anybody that's all worried about global warming or any of that other stuff, um, just let them know. They can relax. That uh, it's not just global warming, warming, it's universal intergalactic warming. It's everything. It's the whole heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed by fire. 
And so do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. In other words, never forget. Never forget that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Never forget God's eternal and we're temporal. And a lot of times our scale of time just does not compute with God's plan and program. And uh, we think He's slow. God thinks He's perfect. Okay? And uh, these are the things that we center on. So, yeah, eight New Testament uses, and they're almost always a bad thing, but here it's a positive thing. And uh, in Philippians we're told to forget the things that lie behind. And yet, what does that mean? Does that mean only the bad things? Does that mean uh, only the things that uh, we used to rely upon before we got saved? Does that mean only the uh, only the things we uh, were not proud of before we got saved. What does that mean? Forgetting what lies behind. Does that mean, you know, my irresponsible college years? What, what does that mean? Well, because he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So it almost becomes universal, almost becomes comprehensive of everything, but it can't quite be, and we know that. So how do we uh, how do we put context to this? How do we appropriately balance the aspect? Let's understand the imperative to forget is not absolute and it's not in isolation apart from other passages of Scripture. And this is our thrill. This is what's noble-minded, to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. And by looking at these other passages, these are all remember passages, by looking at remember commands, and I say, hmm, the Bible gives me these remember commands. The Bible also gives me a forget command. What do I do? (laughs) How do I balance that? How does that work? Well, Scripture agrees with Scripture. And so we reconcile, we harmonize, we accept everything God says is true. And so we're going to make application of the forgetting passages. We're going to make application of the remembering passages. They don't contradict. They're not mutually exclusive. God's not putting us in the in the no-win scenario, the no-win uh, thing where in order to obey one, you have to disobey the other. We obey all of them with respect to this. So the imperative to forget is not absolute. And I think even if we didn't have those other passages, we would know that. That um, when he says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward what lies ahead, he is talking about the, um, the, the things that brought him to where he is now. If you think about it, here we are on Wednesday, whatever the date is, August 15th, right? 2018? 80? (laughs) All right. Wherever we are, though, all right, here we are. This is today. And everything that brought us to this day, all the good things, all the bad things, all the the, uh, victories, all the defeats, whatever that is, it's a part of who we are now. It's a part of bringing us to where we are now. And the command here to forget that comes in the, in the context of reaching forward knowing that where you are now is not the goal. Okay? Because otherwise we get happy, we get complacent, we think, yeah, this is pretty good. Certainly a whole lot better from where I was. And so we start thinking, yeah, I can live with this. But that's not why Christ laid hold of you. That's not why He laid hold of you. 
Where's he going to take you tomorrow? Where's he going to take you 10 years from now? Where's he going to take you? We don't know how much longer we have here. And so the whole point in forgetting what lies behind is so that we don't um, bank on that and we don't, we don't uh, place our faith there and we don't become content with just stopping right here, right now. Does that make sense? And so we are reaching forward. We are looking forward. We are uh, identifying that the, the, the assignments we've not yet completed or the assignments we've not yet even begun, the things that are still in front of us, that's what we have to be focused on. Because if we, if we bail now, if we, if we abandon the Christian walk now, we don't have the, the future victories that He's designed us for. Ever think about throwing away all the work that brought you to this point? Okay? All right. And I think that's what makes the thing significant. I think the immediate context of the verse tells it right there, that it's not an absolute. It's not a blanket command for... <laughs> complete amnesia of everything you experienced prior to now. Like, how could you do that anyway, right? Um, and, uh, and that aspect. So it's not absolute, and it's not an isolation apart from other passages of Scripture. And so there are some sanctified remembrances. And it's not always in an exclusive, forget the bad things, remember the good things. Because sometimes the bad things will teach you. And the memory of the bad things are not pleasant to bring up, but when you do remember them, uh, it's typically in a divine admonishment to remind you of how great God is and what His grace is like and why you just thank God that you're not there anymore. Okay? And so there is actually a sanctified remembrance of even the bad things. So it's not purely a good thing, bad thing kind of thing. All right. If that makes sense. So I got ten minutes to take you through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight verses. Don't laugh. We're going to do it. Hebrews ten thirty two. Remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And for these priests, when they named the name of Christ, boy, they went through it. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Remember Nicodemus, like, what do you know? None of the rulers has followed him. And all the, the mocking. Uh, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So, do you remember those days? Do you remember what you went through? And so then it says, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. And so there is a point where, yes, you've laid up treasure in heaven. Yes, you've had victories. Yes, you've, you've endured a lot. And yes, all of that. But you're on the verge of throwing that all away. You're on the verge of just taking all of that that was a positive, that's brought you to where you are now, and you're on the verge of just walking away from all of that. These uh, priests in Hebrews were on the verge of going back to Mosaic law, abandoning the New Testament, abandoning the uh, church age and the age of grace. How sad is that? Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And considering the, um, 
what should we say, considering the eloquence of their Bible preaching, oh wait, it doesn't say that. It says, considering the re- result of their conduct, that's the outcome of their conduct, imitate their faith. And so remember, remember uh, Ralph Braun, remember Ken Jensen, remember John Eichmann, remember Emil Schmidt, remember any pastor in your past that uh, his equipping was a part of, of where you are now. Remember, okay? Right now we're celebrating Paul Schmidt Blacker just announced his retirement. Sunday's going to be the farewell uh, ceremony there in, at Evergreen Baptist Church. 30 years at Evergreen, uh, 45 years total in ministry, plus 50 years uh, wedding anniversary on top of everything else. And uh, Paul and Marion are going to retire and uh, going to move over to eastern Washington and live out their days with uh, their grandkids and uh, their son-in-law that's a pastor over there and different things. Anyway, remember those who led you. There's a benefit there. There's a command. So I'm going to obey that command, and that command does not defy forgetting what lies behind, right? We're keeping these things straight, and we should be good. A whole bunch of these come from 2 Peter, and then Jude, and then Revelation. 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. We discussed this when we talked about the repetition of doctrine and why there's value in having repetition of doctrine. Probably should teach that one over again too while we're at it. Verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter just kind of lived for that. He just loved to remind people of stuff they already knew. And uh, Peter's like, yep, just making sure. Chapter 3 and verse 2, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So that doesn't violate forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. You've got to remember the words spoken beforehand. Jude 7. See, these creeps are coming in and they're uh, teaching strange doctrines. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, went after strange flesh, they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. They are exhibited as a reminder, as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Revelation 2.5 Here's the pastor-teacher of Ephesus Bible Church, and he's got some problems. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, and Jesus Christ introduces himself here, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. In other words, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, your boss. (laughs) Okay, Because the angel of the church of Ephesus is one of those seven stars held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. It says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. You found them to be false. He'd gone through a lot of conflict and did great. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That's more good stuff. He has eight items here to his credit. 
but I have this against you, you have left your first love. Therefore, remember, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Now, can you imagine the pastor of Ephesus raising his hand saying, well, sorry, Lord, I can't remember that. I was told to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Yeah, yeah, Jesus would say, nope, sorry. Obey that verse too, but obey this verse. Remember from where you have fallen. If you have former days where your spiritual hunger was greater than it is now, remember those days, okay? And ask yourself, why am I not so hungry anymore? Why am I not bearing fruit as much as I used to? What's going on? Remember from where you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This is a pastor he's chewing out. The the good shepherd is dealing with his under-shepherd here in this context and if he doesn't repent he's going to lose his church. This lampstand will be ripped away. There will be a different star held in the right hand of Jesus Christ when this lampstand gets replanted in a new place. So remember, finally 3-3. To the uh, pastor teacher of Sardis Bible Church, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. The reality is you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. All right, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. You know, it's interesting. If you've got loved ones that are walking in darkness and... Um, you're, you want to say something, you want to do something, you want to have a ministry, you want to... The best thing you can do is just pray that they remember the Word of God that's already in their soul. Because it's already there. And if you want to come along and, and badger them with fresh words or whatever, that's just going to hit the skull and bounce off or just whatever. But there's words that are already there. There's doctrine that's already implanted in the soul. Receive the Word implanted that's able to save your soul. So just be, start praying for them and pray that that they will remember. Pray that the Spirit of God will stir it up so that they remember what they have received and heard. And when that wakes them up, then uh, if the Lord wills, they can repent. All right. So um, the imperative to forget is not absolute. It's not an isolation apart from other passages of Scripture. And we are commanded to remember these things even as we're commanded to forget other things. We'll come back on Sunday and uh, we'll uh, remind ourselves of some reaching forward things because I think reaching forward is a thrill. Reaching forward is a, is a blessing when he calls us to reach forward or to stretch forward. or It's like the, the runner that's giving you that last lunge at the finish line. And uh, you know if, if you have the, the, the longer reach, you have the edge, right? The boxer with the longer reach has the edge. We want to reach and uh, God himself does some reaching the the uh, the concept of reaching, man, there's some real blessings related to reaching. So uh, we'll deal with that, Lord willing, and rapture pending, because none of us might be here on Sunday. We could hear that trumpet and all of us, all of us be gone. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessings of studying to show ourselves approved. And I pray, Father, that these concepts we've looked at, 
that uh, we would understand what they are saying, that we would uh, be uh, quick to hear, and that we would be ready to apply, Father, that we want to become effectual doers of the Word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. So Father, uh, we've heard it, now we want to do it, and uh, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight so that we do uh, achieve these things. And keep us looking forward and reaching forward, Father, in a, in a biblical manner that pleases you, and help us to make all these applications in a, in a way that glorifies your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.